Hey everyone, back again in a new place, temporarily. Today to talk about Sigmund Freud's essay or book, The Ego and the Id. But before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can go and see like hundreds and hundreds of videos. That'd be great. And you can learn so much. You can comment. We can learn from you. That'd be amazing. If you found this on YouTube, you're gonna be able to find it as just a podcast. If you'd prefer just audio where there shouldn't be any ads, but some issues with that. If you found this as a podcast, you're gonna be able to find the video for it on YouTube if you're into that. If you wanna help me out, you can like, share, subscribe, and see videos I release every week. You can tell your friends, they might get a kick out of it. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, links for all such things in the descriptions, but please take care of yourselves first. You can also find me on Instagram, TikTok, everything, links all around. And yeah, let's jump into Sigmund Freud's The Ego and The Id. Now what he's doing here is developing what he had introduced or really started to unpack in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, including many of his other texts. But here he gives a lot of attention to the question of the id, the ego, and the superego, what they are, how they interact, and their connection to the conscious, consciousness, and the unconscious. So what he's going to do is nuance the discussion of the conscious and the unconscious to suggest that we can't really reduce the psyche to these two operations. It's not as though there's just the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. There are so many other things playing a part here. However, he begins with this distinction between the conscious and the unconscious, where he says that there can, you can have latent thoughts or latent ideas that are not really unconscious, but that have just been forgotten. So for example, you might go to a restaurant and have dumplings and you love them. They're so good. You love these dumplings. But after the restaurant, you know, a week later, you're not spending all your time thinking about how much you love dumplings. It doesn't change the fact that you love those dumplings. It is still in you. And maybe a few months later, you see an ad for dumplings because someone's advertising dumplings for whatever reason. And you're like, wow, you, you know, all of this emotion comes back to you. You remember the sweet taste of dumplings, maybe the delicate soy sauce that you had dipped them in. And in that moment, what was once unconscious becomes conscious again. And it enters your mind and it can then exist out in the world in almost like your expression of that feeling, how it even feels to you. And you talk to your friends and tell them about these amazing dumplings. But in this moment where you recall the dumplings is revealed that the distinction between the unconscious and the conscious needs to be really nuanced. Because if something is able to be, is able to reemerge, if an idea, if a feeling can reemerge, it reveals then that that idea was almost always kind of just under the surface. And you can just recall it whenever you want. So he suggests then that the unconscious should be really divided between what is truly unconscious, what can't just simply return to you in the form of consciousness. He divides that, he separates that from the pre-conscious. That is what is always under the surface and what can be brought back into consciousness. In the case of the unconscious, however, he refers to those things, those feelings, those drives, those desires that have been repressed, that have been subjugated, 
and therefore cannot so easily just reemerge, cannot so easily just sprout up again. So as of now, we have the unconscious. That is those things that that arena where things can't just come back up. There's the preconscious ideas, feelings that can, if you just recall them, and then you can be filled with emotion about your love for dumplings. And then there's that which is conscious. And that is all those things that you're always thinking about that you, you know, act upon that shapes the way you exist in the world and that makes sense to you. Now, in the case of the unconscious, that arena in which drives, desires, ideas are suppressed, they are done so by many different forces. And we're going to get into this a little bit more as we go on here, but some of them might include like authority, you know, like police, like teachers, like doctors, like whoever, who convince you that there are some parts of yourself that you are not meant to embrace and that you have to sequester, you have to repress. Now it's psychoanalysis job to reveal these types of resistances to your unconscious drives and desires, to understand them in the world to make sense of your situation, how you feel, how unconscious drives can even though they're unconscious, can still frame who you are, can still have an effect on you. And as you become aware of the forces that suppress them, you might better understand those drives and those desires. Now within ourselves, it's not really as though there are these external forces that determine what we will repress, what we will suppress within ourselves. We have a built-in mechanism that is meant to actually control our drives and desires that mediates all of our deep-seated feelings, our wants, our needs, that mediates that, that regulates them and coordinates them with what can be permitted in the external world. And this is what Freud calls the ego. The ego is what is responsible for regulating these drives and desires, making sure that they do not fall out of line, that they do not make someone do something that will make them an aberration within society. So the ego is this regulative capacity that coordinates the unconscious with the external world so that you can exist in the world without you know, being arrested or without getting into trouble. Now the ego, at least its operations, are not always graspable to us. They are unconscious themselves. A lot of the time we regulate ourselves without actually knowing that we regulate ourselves, what we are permitted to do what drives we are permitted to act on, which is all fine. Like Freud is not criticizing this really in itself. However, very much like it is psychoanalysis's job to reveal the types of forces that restrict what people can do and that they suppress in their unconscious, the psychoanalyst will also seek to identify each individual person's own mechanisms that are found within their ego that represses their own drives and desires, because this is happening within yourself. No, no one in the external world, no force is like going into you and doing this. We have these mechanisms within us that perform these operations of oppression. So the psychoanalyst will work with someone in order to identify how their own ego works, how it represses desires, how it works to mediate the unconscious with the external world. So psychoanalysis strives to try and make unconscious drives pre-conscious. 
so that they can be better understood, so that they can be called upon and understood, not necessarily acted upon, but that so that they can be understood. And the psychoanalysts will do this to treat people suffering from certain mental illnesses to reveal that in some cases mental illnesses can be understood based on people's operations of self-repression and the repression that comes from outside. Now, of course, a lot of this is antiquated. Freud's theories are not really taken seriously in among therapists, among counselors. In some cases, yes, and of course, Freud offered a lot in terms of understanding the way that our childhood can influence how we exist in the world, how relationships with parents can influence how people will exist in the world. Of course, there is some value there. There's a lot of problems with Freud as well. Of course, many of his ideas were sexist. The idea that women were just yearning to have a penis in the form of penis envy, that young boys really feared the thought of becoming a woman. Of course, this is all very... This is all very problematic, and we can criticize Freud for this. However, there are certainly some things to take from it. So we can hold Freud accountable for these ideas that we, we've clearly, we'd like to think we move beyond, but also acknowledge that some of what he had to say in terms of the ego and our way of actually mediating our relationship to the world can be useful to know and to understand, at least even as just a theory. So the ego, in its mediating function, in its regulative function, its regulating function, it really stands in for reason and common sense for Freud. It seeks to try and make the person act in accordance with reason and with common sense, which, which, you know, my immediate impulse is to say, okay, well, what are these things? What really is common sense? What is reason? I'm not gonna get into that now, but it's an important question to really lay out when approaching this type of characterization. I'd love to hear what any of you have to say about it. Now here he introduces another term. So instead of thinking about the unconscious as the unconscious, he proposes that we could think about it as the id, another term that works in conjunction with the ego, alongside the ego, as being that site that the ego tries to manage and control, which is a helpful way to distinguish, you know, the distinction between the unconscious, the preconscious, and the conscious, now we have these other operations at play in the form of the ego. And he provides us another term to really grasp the unconscious as the id. So the ego has a relationship with the id in trying to manage it, trying to regulate it, and every desire and drive found within it. So the ego, within Freud, in Freud's words, tries to make the external world have some kind of bearing, have some influence on the id so that the id that is our most deep-rooted desires, are actually in accordance with what is permissible in the external world. And one way that the ego is able to do this is through sublimation, which assumes many different forms here. So sublimation is the act of transforming a desire into something that is socially, culturally acceptable. So like what is often associated with unconscious drives, including sexual drives, these can be transformed instead into work ethic. You transform sexual desire into work ethic, which is one way that it can be transformed. Now this is sublimation. However, the ego performs sublimation in another way as well, in that the ego can absorb certain drives and 
the attachment of drives to certain objects, ideas out in the world, and the ego can embrace them. And they can then be a site that the unconscious, that the id, can approach and can identify with as a way to release any of its tensions, to release, to pursue, to attain, to realize its desires, its wants, its drives. And this is what he also calls object cathesis. So one of the ways that this can actually go wrong though happens when someone suffers from melancholia. And I've done an episode on his text on melancholia and mourning, which you should go check out if you want more on this. But essentially what happens within melancholia for Freud is that somebody holds on to something that has been lost, like in the case of a, of a loved one. If, if uh, your partner breaks up with you and you know, you're really sad about it, in some cases you might not want to let go and you will really embrace that lost person. You might even adopt some of their qualities and you might actually adopt those qualities as part of your regulating apparatus in your ego. And in a moment like that, there is actually a disjunction between your own deep-seated drives and new drives that you have been trying to internalize in order to retain that lost person or object or whatever. And in such a case, it doesn't allow you to actually grow or change as a human and you're caught in a state of arrested development. In that moment then, you're suffering from melancholia. You can't seem to get beyond it. You can't seem to change it all. You're just beholden to this new set of parameters that don't actually make sense to you. And so you're caught and you can't actually develop. So object cathesis can pose a problem in that way if it is taken too far. Now object cathesis belongs to a broader idea of object identification. Now object identification for Freud begins in childhood where people begin to associate or children begin to associate with their parental figures, with their father and their mother in different ways, of course, because this is, this is highly gendered, which we can prob problematize and of course we must problematize. But he suggests that young boys will associate with their fathers and identify with their fathers whereas girls identify with their mothers and then they come to assume those roles later in life. Now in the case of young boys, because they actually aspire to be like their father, who is a, an authoritative figure within the household, they identify with that father and they treat the mother as an object of their own desire, as something that they want to pursue. And this is the crux of the Oedipus complex that he identifies that young boys seek to pursue their mother's love as an object of gratification, whereas the father is what's getting in the way. Now they actually want to be like the father because they see that the father has somehow attained their mother's love, like in the form of a sexual bond. And so they want to adopt that as well. Now, of course, these ideas that, you know, they're, we know all the problems with them, but this is what he says. Now, what happens here is that the child, the young boy, actually starts to adopt and to regulate their own drives and desires and to displace them, to sublimate them into other ways. And this is how the ego starts to be formed to some extent through the adoption of this regulative, regulating capacity. Now, to be gracious to Freud, he acknowledges that it's not as though young 
boys or young girls just totally embrace any of these things. Instead, he's quite clear that sexual identification goes along a spectrum and they're the masculine and feminine qualities exist along a spectrum. It's not as though it's just like totally young boys embrace it this way and young girls this way. Like each can have these types of relations with either parent. It's not restricted, which is still a far cry from saying that Freud is undoing the sexist harms of his theory, but it is some degree of nuance to understand it. Now, with the identification with the father, we see a new term enter the picture here. So, so far, we have the unconscious, we have the pre-conscious, we have the conscious. Then we have the id that associates, identifies with the unconscious. We have the ego that regulates the id, mediates it with the world. But now there is also the super ego. And the super ego emerges in childhood as well, really with this identification with the father. And the super ego, instead of being a mediating factor between the id and the external world, the superego is gonna be much more conscious to us. It very much resonates with our identity, specifically our outward-facing wants and needs and drives and exercises and every way that we exist in the world that makes sense to us, but that has been determined in advance according to what we've been permitted to do from childhood. So as it goes for Freud, as a child, you are repressed by your father. Your father restricts what you're able to do. The patriarchal figure in your life restricts what you can do. And this figure is actually found in other places as well, like with the teacher, like the police officer, like the bureaucracy, whatever, that restricts what you are able to do. And through that, you come to develop an identity. Like you can't just exist outside of it. It is gonna frame and shape who you are. So the superego is the adoption of all of these rules and restrictions and is what you are able to actually, the way you're actually able to express yourself in the face of all of these forces. So you have this outward facing desire to be who you wanna be, but it is always regulated and we regulate ourselves quite deliberately to fit within the world. Now, one of the risks present here is that if a father or, or any other patriarchal figure in one's life is too overbearing, is too restrictive, it can create a sense of guilt in a child that will extend throughout their whole life, which is a problem for Freud in that people, when they experience such guilt, might you know, experience things like depression or not actually have a good relationship with themselves or not be able to furnish relationships with others because they have been restricted. They have don't actually have an attachment to who they are. They've been commanded too much to actually be able to develop any sense of a self or identity that makes sense to them. So it's important now to understand that between the id, ego, and the super ego, we have a circle, kind of like a circle. Think of it like, like a trinity, like a triangle, where you have the id, which is connected to the ego, the ego, which is connected to the superego, and the superego connected back to the id. And the reason for that is that the superego is formed within childhood in relationship with, in proximity to, repressive forces, patriarchal authoritative forces that shape who we are, which also comes to bear upon the id itself. And it is the site that we come to actually develop our sense of self and our identity 
that we choose to project into the world, that we are able to project into the world. And so in that way, the superego is actually attached to the id in that it is an expression to some extent of those drives and those desires that have been allowed, that have been allowed to pass through the ego into the world. So the three of them are connected. You can't just dissociate any from the other. They all work in harmony with one another. And the point of psychoanalysis is to really harness this harmony, to really make sure that it's working fluidly to maximize what can be permitted in order to exist in the world, while also identifying those forces in the world that are restrictive and like this would be the activist part of psychoanalysis in like limiting repressive functions that seek to inhibit one's ability to express themselves in a way that makes sense to them. So in adopting this identity in childhood, really for you know, young boys and of course young girls as well, like embracing this patriarchal view, they come to associate with that patriarchal view and try to emulate it later in life. So this figure, this father figure and many other father figures assume the role of what Freud calls the ego ideal. They are the ultimate regulating function. And so it is an ideal that is pursued, that is sought after, that people try to embrace, try to really emulate later in life. So as we've been framing it so far, this might seem a little bit strange to anyone who is told that the id resonates with like our true natural instincts, like human biological instincts. Now Freud is not saying that, you know, we can read into it a little bit, but what Freud is saying is that our unconscious drives are not like absolutely natural and therefore we have to like liberate all of them. He's suggesting that these unconscious drives come to be shaped through like generations of repetition. So if we exist in a world that remains somewhat the same, has certain values, those values will become normalized to such an extent that they will become part of like our identity and even steep far enough into us to become part of our unconscious, to resonate with our unconscious drives and desires. So he says that the id, the unconscious, is formed by residues of the existence of countless egos before it. So it's important to really know how society can come to bear upon the id and the unconscious. It's not as though we, you know, as humans were just dropped down on earth with a set of drives and desires that's universal among us and society has just been getting in the way of embracing those things. Instead, we have to acknowledge society's role in actually shaping our desires and our wants. So when the ego forms the super ego out of the id, it's not like revealing, bringing forth that universal singular human drive or desire or however many of them there are, it is instead reviving previous egos from previous generations who have been shaped by society, by authority, by other things as well. And now to move into the last part, he introduces here the conflicting instincts between Eros and Thanatos, Thanatos, which translates to the life instinct or pleasure instinct and the death instinct, life drive versus the death drive. And he says that within each of us is both a life instinct and a death instinct. And Freud, having seen horrors of human society, like, of course, he concluded that there must be something more than just wanting to extend and to encourage life among humans. Humans commit such horrors against one another that we can't really, that we have to leave some room to acknowledge that there's some 
badness in us to some extent. Now, it's important to acknowledge, though, that as Freud does, that it is society that in our world that comes to shape our unconscious drives. I think the same can be extended to these instincts. That is, this death instinct might not actually have anything to do with us as humans, but instead has everything to do with like a repeated, repeated violences inflicted within society that we've come to internalize as then being natural and normal, and we come to repeat. So Eros, the life instinct, seeks to extend life, to really embrace all the pleasure that life can afford, while the death instinct seeks to reduce life to a state of inanimate matter, essentially, to a state of non-being like that we came from before being born, and that we pursue into death. And we might experience both at the same time to varying degrees. You might experience love towards something and hate towards the same thing at the same time. Very much, it's very much possible. It's important to account for how they exist in harmony with one another, for Freud at least. Whether or not you buy it, please let me know. Now, as its role as a regulator, the ego desexualizes and tries to sublimate Eros's drives and desires. And in doing so, it reveals that it operates according to Thanatos to some extent, to Thanatos, to the death drive. That is, it tries to control. It tries to make us more docile. That is, not to embrace life, but to embrace a kind of deathness within us, a, a, a death of our identity and our wants, which is just one expression of this death drive that is found within us that the ego really embraces and that the ego tries to put in place. And then if the regulating function is not working right, then Thanatos can actually assume an outward expression. It can assume the form of aggressiveness towards other people, which can assume violence. It can be acting out. It can be being mean to people, which is not, it seems to go against what it would mean to embrace life. And it is a way to understand those expressions of violence and anger that seem all too ubiquitous in our world. And I think that there's a problem here in that Freud does naturalize and he normalizes aggression and violence, just almost says that it's part of our nature, which is difficult to really understand given that he's willing to acknowledge society's role. So it seems more like the better understanding would be that maybe we live in a society that encourages, that rewards aggressiveness and violence, that this doesn't actually have anything to do with what it means to be human. But again, let me know what you think. And that pretty much encapsulates the core of this book, really essay length. I'd love to know what any of you have to say about it. There's a lot to unpack here. There's some things I didn't cover. And if any of those things you think are totally necessary for people to know, like put a comment about it. I can pin it. Everyone can see. It'll be great. We'll all learn from your vast knowledge. If you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe. And on that note, I'll catch you later. Take care.